And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. There's this 12-year-old boy. He was a little bit nervous. He was sitting out in front of his orthodontist office. It was his first appointment. You know how they make you fill out that patient questionnaire? Well, evidently, he wanted to, you know, impress or find favor with the dentist. And in the space that was marked hobbies, he wrote swimming and flossing. Woo! Right? That story reflects... Yeah, (laughs) Kathy's over here. Very good, son. Very good. Uh, The story reflects how we all want to portray ourselves to others as better than we really are. Okay? We want to make a good impression. When we do that, we're forgetting something very important, namely that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All right, that's, that's Hebrews 4.13. Verse 12 in there, Hebrews 4, has already told us that God knows the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Someday we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account of our lives. So we have to judge our sins really on the thought level, on the heart level. Especially we must be on guard against this damnable sin of self-righteousness. Now in Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul really indicts the Gentiles mainly for their many sins. You you looked at them last week, right? Idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, homosexuality, and, and a long list of destructive relational sins. Well, being a Jew and a a former Pharisee, Paul knew that his fellow Jews would be sitting on the sideline going, yeah, give it to those pagan sinners, Paul. They smugly would be thinking, thank God that I'm not like those awful Gentile sinners. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to zero in on the Jews themselves. Now, he doesn't address them Uh, directly until verse 17 and this has led to a lot of debate as to whether he's addressing moral Gentiles or the Jew in these opening verses now practically it really doesn't matter from his own pharisaical background Paul knew that self-righteous people tend to justify themselves by blaming others Self-righteousness is very difficult uh, to get people to see and to condemn within themselves. But it's a serious, damnable sin because it keeps people from seeing their need for the gospel. It believes the lie that we can be good enough in ourselves to qualify for heaven. We don't need a Savior who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Maybe really gross sinners need a Savior, uh, but me, hey, I'm basically a a good person. Uh, God wouldn't judge a good guy like me, would he? Or would he? Now, if you're tired of hearing about God's judgment, I'm sorry. That's kind of what these verses that we're going to be going through for the next few weeks beyond this are going to be about. Today, Paul refers to the judgment of God in verses 2, 3, and 5. And uh, he refers to condemning yourself in verse 1 and uh, storing up wrath for the day of wrath of of God's judgment in verse 5. So it's really hard to dodge Paul's message here, which is this. If you do not repent of your self-righteous hypocrisy, you are simply storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, uh, we come before you again to bow the knee and to acknowledge that we need your help. Uh, Father, Debbie mentioned that the Word of God is for all those various things, Father, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate uh, in all things. So, God, we pray that we would see ourselves in this passage this morning, that we would take the action that you would want us to take, speak truth into our hearts, Father. We want to glorify you by doing what your Word says. Help us do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in chapter 1, Paul speaks of they. But beginning in here, in chapter 2, he directly addresses his reader as you. You see, he's going from preaching to meddling. Now, he, now he, he knows that it's easy to be blind to this deadly sin of self-righteousness. So he kind of reaches out of the pages, grabs us by the, the lapels, shakes us up a bit and says, Hey, listen up, I'm talking to you. Not just them, I'm talking to you. He makes four points in this indictment that we're looking at this morning, and I'm going to kind of follow Paul's uh, verbiage here using the more direct you rather than the we. So point number one, you are prone to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that you commit. Uh, Paul says in verse one, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, it's kind of difficult to understand what the therefore is therefore. That's an, that's an old uh, uh, precept thing. If you see a therefore, you need to find out what the therefore is therefore. It's referring to something previous. It probably refers back to Romans 1, 18 through 32, where we see God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Therefore, when seemingly moral people condemn other sinners, but then it comes out that they are practicing the very same sins, it renders them without excuse before God. By practicing the same sins, Paul is, he's probably not uh, referring to the more outwardly flagrant sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, and homosexuality of verses 24 through 28. Uh, they're not so common among re religious folks. But rather, he's probably referring to the relational sins that we see there in verses 29 and 31, or through 31, of which we're all guilty. Paul is pointing out how prone we are to condemn others and justify ourselves even though we're guilty of the same sins that we're condemning in others. Now we need to understand that Paul isn't condemning the act of judging others per se in that he expects his Jewish readers to agree with him that the sins of the Gentiles are wrong, that they're actually sins. The problem with judging others is when you secretly engage in the same behavior that you are openly condemning. Three weeks ago, I, I preached kind of a sermon to the husbands, and I preached that they were to, one of the things is they were to build up their wives. So if I were to go home and berate and, and belittle Debbie, my wife, then I'd be go, uh, guilty of doing what I preached against. When a politician postures himself as standing for family values, but it comes out that he snuck off to visit his mistress in, in a neighboring county, uh, then he has condemned himself. Probably one of the most frequently used but misapplied verses in Scripture 
is Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will be not judged. People take that to mean you just shouldn't judge anybody. It's not our place to judge. But if they would simply keep reading. In verse 6, uh, Jesus tells us not to give what is holy to dogs or to cast our pearls before the swine. Now, he's not talking about animals, dogs, and swine. He's talking about people who are dogs, people who are swines. To obey that verse, you have to judge whether a person is a dog or a swine or are they an actual believer. Then, in verse 15, Jesus warns about false prophets who come as wolves in sheep's clothing. So you have to judge carefully to conclude, hey, this isn't a sheep. This is a wolf masquerading as a sheep. And the point is clear. If you don't make correct judgments about people, you might be eaten by wolves. So in verse 1, Paul is not saying that it is wrong to judge others. Rather, he's saying that it's wrong to self-righteously judge others while at the same time practicing the sins that you're judging. Now, we could come up with more, but I'm just going to uh, give you five marks of a self-righteous hypocrite by which to kind of evaluate yourself. And, and if you apply any of these to your spouse, guess what? You is one. All right? A, a self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sins. Again, back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your eye first, and maybe then you'll be able to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Someone has defined a hypocrite as the guy who complains that there is just too much sex and violence on his DVD player. Let that sink in. B, a self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on really selective standards, not on the whole of God's Word. One of the most helpful chapters on understanding the sin of self-righteousness is Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. The Pharisees picked out certain parts of the law and prided themselves on their obedience, but they neglected the weightier things such as justice and mercy and uh, faithfulness. They invented loopholes around keeping the law. And many Christians do the same thing. The self-righteous person picks parts of the Bible that he likes and he prides himself on keeping those parts. And he condemns as legalists those who seek to obey all of God's word. We'll see a self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 28, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees were concerned that they not defile themselves for the Passover by going into Pilate's Gentile court. According to law and tradition, they were doing right there. But do you know what they were doing at the very same time? They were seeking to crucify the innocent Lord Jesus. Keeping this part of the law, but planning on murdering somebody. Self-righteous hypocrites, they want to keep up that outward Christian appearance, but they don't judge their own sins on the heart level. They put on the happy Christian face while they're here at church, 
But then they go home and, and use abusive speech with their families. Well, D, a self-righteous hypocrite, is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. Listen to what Jesus, again from Matthew 23, tells these scribes. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. In other words, just one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. They didn't care about the people. They didn't care about the people's hearts before God. They just wanted to gain followers so that they would look good. Well, E, a self-righteous hypocrite justifies himself by comparing himself with others or by blaming, blaming others for his own sins. In Luke 18, Jesus told the parable of the proud Pharisee who goes to pray into the temple. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Evidently, there was a tax collector down on his knees there. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. He wasn't comparing himself with God's Word, which absolutely condemns pride. Rather, he was comparing himself with others who, in his mind, were worse than he was. In his mind, he kept some of the law. The tax collector didn't keep any of it. So, on the curve, he is accepted by God, while this lousy tax collector is rejected. But you know what? God doesn't grade on the curve. Blame shifting is a common problem. It, it, it's happened from the very first, right? Adam and Eve. He comes looking for them. <laughs> and they're nowhere to be found. And, uh, and, 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 and she and, and asks Adam, what's going on? Oh, the woman you gave me. Have you eaten of the fruit? The woman you gave me, right? Blame shifting. It goes a long way back. The husband justifies himself and blames the wife for all of the issues in the marriage. The wife justifies herself and blames the husband. They're both passing judgment on one another uh, while each of them is doing the same things that they're blaming their spouse of doing. If they stop blaming each other, they would see dramatic improvement in their marriage. So Paul is quite practical here. You are prone to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that you commit. Well, number two, self-righteous hypocrisy brings you under God's judgment. This is verses two and three. Paul says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things as contemning others of sins that you're doing. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 2 literally reads, The judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. He means that God's judgment against sin is fully in accord, in accord with the facts. That it is just. It is right. Now Paul's hypothetical Jewish reader that he is addressing, he would have agreed that God's judgment is according to the truth. He would not get any kickback from a Jew, a, a Jew about that. Yes, God's judgment is just, and it is according to the truth. Where they would have disagreed with Paul 
is his assertion that, assertion that God's righteous judgment falls on the Jews just as it does the Gentiles. You see, the Jews claimed a special status before God because they were His covenant people, His chosen people. They believed that if you were a Jew living in Palestine, you were treated as if you kept all of the commandments and were guaranteed of the life to come. But Paul applies God's judgment to Jew and Gentile alike. And he says, if you judge others for the very same sins that you commit, then you are guilty in God's court of justice. Now, at this point, Paul isn't pointing to God's revealed law as the standard for judgment, which he could obviously do. Rather, he's saying that a self-righteous person judges someone else for a sin that, sin that he himself is practicing. And if he does that, he's not going to escape judgment. If you condemn someone for lying to you and then you turn around and lie to someone else, guess what? You've condemned yourself. If you berate someone who stole from you, but then you cheat the government on your taxes, uh, or you steal something from your employer, you're not going to escape God's judgment. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that you'd escape God's judgment if you lie or steal without judging others. No, he's showing all of us that we have violated our own standards by doing the very things that we condemn in others. That means we stand guilty before God. Well, major point number three here, the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience should lead us to repentance, not to presume on God's grace. Verse four, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is kind of a, a scary verse. In verse 4, Paul introduces a, a rhetorical question that brings to light the false assumption of the person who is addressed in verse 3. Paul is saying, if you think that you can get away with sin because God is kind and forbearing and patient, you're greatly mistaken. His kindness has a purpose, and that is to lead you to repentance, not to self-righteous complacency, if you go on sinning, presuming on His grace, you're st only storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, they overlap somewhat, but they do have some different nuances of meaning. We understand kindness. It points to the many good gifts that God has given us uh, and, and given to the entire human race. He gives us air to breathe. Food to eat, homes to live in, families that love us, beauty everywhere we look, and bodies and minds that, for the most part, <laughs> work as they're supposed to work. He treats us far better than we deserve. God's forbearance, that points to the fact that He doesn't strike us dead instantly when we defiantly sin against Him. How many times have we known uh, what is right and deliberately disobeyed God could have struck us dead on hundreds of occasions and he would have been perfectly just in doing it but he didn't do it he is tolerant 
That's his forbearance. God's patience is similar to his tolerance. The word literally means long on wrath, slow to anger. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent without inflicting judgment. And God doesn't just trickle these benefits on the sinner. Rather, Paul says, he gives them richly, the richness of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. The problem is, here's why this is so dangerous. Sinners mistakenly think that because they experience all these great blessings of God and God's judgment has not yet fell on them, that he must accept them. He must be okay. They won't face his judgment because they aren't really bad sinners like Paul talked about there at the end of chapter 1. But Paul says if you think that God's kindness, forbearance, and patience mean that you will escape the final judgment, you're in big trouble. God is tolerant. He is, he is kind. He, he, he's forbearing. He's patient for one reason. So that you will repent. So, you are prone to self-righteously judge others for the very sins that you commit. And such self-righteousness, that brings us under God's judgment. But you don't mistake God's kindness to mean that you will escape His judgment. He's only given you time to repent. And lastly, number four, if you do not deal with your hard, unrepentant heart, you're simply storing up wrath for the coming day of God's judgment. This is verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Frederick got it. He captures the grim irony here of Paul's words. He says, Every favor trampled underfoot adds to the treasure of wrath which is already suspended over the heads of impenitent people. Another way of looking at this is if you you sit here week after week under the preaching of the gospel and you hear the truth that you're a sinner and you need a savior and you keep living what you think is a good life and you don't know the Lord, you're adding up a treasure of wrath that's going to be revealed one day the day of judgment. James Boyce pictures it as a miser who for years stored up his hoard of gold in the attic above his bed. It it was his treasure. But then one night, the weight of all that gold broke through the ceiling and came crashing down on his head, killing him. Here he thought he was storing up his treasure, but he was only adding to his own judgment. It's the same for the self-righteous person who presumes on God's kindness and forbearance and patience. He judges others, but he doesn't judge his own sin. He goes on in his pride, thinking that his outward righteousness is amassing a great treasure in heaven. But actually, he's amassing a treasure of wrath for the day of judgment. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul isn't talking to the idolaters or to the sexually immoral. He's talking to the moral, religious crowd. And also, the day of wrath points to its certainty. There will be a day of wrath for those who have not repented of their sins, especially this sin of self-righteousness. It's on God's calendar, y'all. 
We don't know what that day is, but it's coming. In Acts 17, Paul says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, since it is absolutely certain, we need to be ready for it. But how? The problem that we've got to deal with is our hard, unrepentant hearts. Now, the word impenitent comes from a Greek word that we get our word uh, sclerosis from. You ever heard of uh, arterial sclerosis? It means hardening of the arteries. My, my uh, mother suffered from that. Paul uses it here to mean spiritual hardening of the heart. Now, repentance is a change of heart and mind that causes us to turn from our sin to God, not just outwardly, but on the heart level. It includes sorrow for our sin and a resolve to turn from them. And we don't just do it once when we come to Christ. This is a lifelong, ongoing mark of true conversion. True Christians habitually judge their own sins on the heart or the thought level based on the standards of God's Word. And that includes the damnable sin of self-righteousness which stems from pride. True Christians are marked, I love this, uh, David is one that talks about this, by a broken and contrite heart before God. He says, uh, a broken and contrite heart, uh, O God, you will not despise. Well, a man complained about the amount of time that his family spent in front of the TV. His girls watched too much cartoons and neglected their schoolwork. His wife, she preferred reality TV to, you know, housework. And his solution, he says, I'm going to pull the plug just as soon as baseball season is over. How easy it is to fall into this deadly sin of self-righteousness. God's solution is to deal with our sins on the heart level before Him. Come to Christ, confess your sins, turning from them, and He'll forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Folks, don't play games with God. His kindness should lead you to genuine, ongoing repentance. Let's pray. Father, do a work in our hearts that only You can do. That at the end of the day, we would give you glory for what we see happening in our own lives, happening in the lives of others. As we come to grips with this self-righteousness that we are all prone to, it's it's part of our fallen nature. God, your spirit indwells us as believers to combat that. And, And Paul talks about the battle that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. But God, if there's anybody out here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, I pray that you would just speak this truth into their heart, that you would draw them to yourself, uh, Jesus, that they may know you for who you really are. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this morning, maybe you're sitting out there and, and you've heard us talking about these this self-righteousness and maybe you recognize, you know, it'd be hard-pressed. I, is my assumption, for anybody to say, yeah, I've never been, nor will I ever be self-righteous. You know, that's a pretty self-righteous statement in itself. We all suffer from this. Here's the trick. Have you ever come to Jesus and told Him (laughs) specifically about your self-righteousness and the fact that, oh, I've learned today that I'm really not righteousness. My righteousness, our righteousness can never be founded on self 
That will not work. Scripture is clear. You know where Paul is headed in all of this from chapter 118 all the way through uh, verse 22 in chapter 3? You know what, what he ends up saying, how he concludes all of this? You, you know, chapter 3, uh, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've realized that for the first time today and you do now understand, you see that you need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He's the one that came and died on the cross for your sins. The Bible's very clear. Uh, believe in Him. Alright? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you need Jesus today, you come. If you're a believer, I hope that you've done a little introspection. And if you're getting gigged, it's probably not your wife. We call it the Holy Spirit. It's saying, hey, listen up. This is something that you need to pay attention to. We all have it to some degree. When God shows it to you, take it to Him. Don't run from it. Take it to Him. Do what He tells you to do. You'll be blessed for it. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.